Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, look, it's the end of the week, and the big story around here is adaptations. For one, the Law & Order franchise has just been adapted to Toronto. For another, Netflix just dropped its adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Today on the podcast, do they work? The group chat is here. Let's go. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. I think the reasonable place for us to get started is with this. I think, I think you just needed to hear it. I think we needed to hear that in order for us to get this conversation started. That is, of course, the iconic theme of Law & Order, the most iconic franchise of all time when it comes to the space of crime procedurals. It just launched a brand new series this week. It is called Law and Order Toronto Criminal Intent, which is many words and many names. And we're going to talk about what that means. We are, basically, the show stars detectives Henry Graff and Frankie Bateman. And they got a bunch of high profile murder cases to solve because this is Law and Order. And you know, you know, you know how it goes. You know the vibes. The folks around the commotion table have all seen the first episode of the show. They're raring to go about this. Emil Niazi is here. Cyrus Marcus Ware is here. Michelle Cho is here. Emil, Cyrus, Michelle, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to do this. Let's go. Can't wait. Can't wait. Oh my Looking God. Looking forward. <laughs> and anytime we get a chance to talk about Law and Order is a delight for me. Okay, so the first episode, Graf and Bateman, which is, first of all, a fantastic detective couple name, can I just say? They're investigating, they're investigating the disappearance of a crypto investor who vanished while on a yacht in Lake Ontario. He disappears, but of course, he's got a passcode with him. And the passcode is a passcode to potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. There are a bunch of suspects in the death. His wife is a suspect. Uh, his business partner is a suspect. A few of his disgruntled investors are suspects here. Emil, look, you're no stranger to Law & Order. You're the Law yeah. & Order encyclopedic, encyclopedia, walking encyclopedia, as far as I can tell. Uh, you're pretty familiar, let's say, with the blueprint of Law and Order. When you watch the show, how does it how does it stack up? Uh, yes, it's true. I've seen every single Law and Order and all of the spinoff episodes, <laughs> um, including the original Criminal Intent. Yes, um, you know it. It does. It is a formula. Obviously, all procedurals are. We're so familiar with the you know lexography of of. Um, of procedurals at this point as a society. Yes. Um, and this new one, it definitely follows it. You know, it's like paint by numbers at this point. But, I, you know, what's funny is that there have been so many spinoffs. At this point, there's like at least four versions of Law & Order on the air right now. Yeah. And yet this still felt like it was grasping a little bit, you know, like the one-liners fell so flat. It was like I could hear the thud when they said them. <laughs> um 
And, you know, I kind of consider law and order like the prestige uh, of procedurals. You know, yeah. if, if law and order is at the top, you know, one of the FBI's or, or you know, <laughs> CSI Vegas is at the bottom. Poor and, FBI catching a stray this morning, but okay, yeah, continue. Sorry, yeah, sorry yeah. FBI's. The FBI's. There's so many of them. Um, and I was really rooting for it. Like, I really wanted it to be successful. And yeah. I just felt like even though they had uh, articulated all of the necessary steps and, and, you know, they had said the things they needed to say and the crime was, was, um, you know, it's perfect law and order crime. Yeah. It, it didn't quite get there, you know, mm. and it just really was like a Canadian version of an American show. That's what I felt. And we can dig into that a little bit more, but it really felt to me like, um, the sort of the the B version or the C version of of the kind of content that I'm used to. I, I love that. Four minutes into this, you're like Canadian derogatory. Like that's like that's, that's really the, the the reference point that we're getting at here. Which, which is, I don't want it to be. Which I don't want it to be. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I say that with love. <laughs> I I totally get it. Also, I think like Michelle, it changes your energy and relationship to a show when you live in the place where it's set. Like I, continuity stuff happening in like I don't know any Law and Order New York shows. I'm not paying attention. Continuity stuff happening in this show where like they're just crossing the street from Nathan Phillips Square. And I'm like, you wouldn't cross mm-hmm. the street that way. It just simply <laughs> that's not how that would work. And I'm just trying to get over that, but it's fine. That's 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 on me, I think. What about you? What was your reaction to watching Law and Order Toronto the first episode? Well, so so I actually really appreciated seeing, you know, these places that are familiar to me. Yeah. So like Toronto getting to play itself versus standing in for, you know, whatever other North American city. So that yeah. was probably my favorite part of the show. Although I did catch that. Yeah. Like, where did they go across from Nathan <laughs> Phillips Square to what? And how did they race there <laughs> in like the two seconds? I don't know. Yes. Anyways, but um, but really, I think Okay, so I'm admittedly not as huge of a fan of the Law and Order franchise. No one as is as big Emil, a fan but, as Amelia. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but I do. You know, I have I've watched a lot of it over my lifetime because it's really it's been around since 1990. I think. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it was very retro to me to watch this, um, even though the storyline is super current or it's, you know, it, it aiming to be, mm-hmm. you know, you hear the like, dun dun, like the opening and the the voiceover and it just had a kind of retro throwback feel. So I don't yeah. know if, yeah, th- that that felt kind of incongruous, like the nowness, newness, and then the the throwback that Dun Dun is yeah. so iconic that like I was willing to forgive a lot of things. Can we play it? Do we? I think we have it. Can we play it real quick? Thank you. It just restores something in the equilibrium of the world when I hear that sound. Yes. Uh, Cyrus, serotonin boost. It's their immediate <laughs> serotonin boost. A hundred percent. Look, it's an interesting time for Toronto to be getting a cop show, Cyrus, because the city's mayor Olivia Chow. She just approved this uh, motion approving, you know, a, a massive increase to the Toronto police budget after actually saying, you know what, we're, we're originally not going to do this. How did you feel watching this first episode while this political drama plays out in the real world? I mean, this is what we call in the biz copaganda, which is basically <laughs> propaganda that is focused on cops. And I, first of all, I just have to say, I have never seen a show with so many T-shirts and blazers. What was happening? happening with that. I don't know why there were so many of those everywhere. There were cops running, running in Oh, I can't hear. I can't hear you there, Cyrus. Sorry. Every scene, walking, have a conversation. 
they, they it's just this idea that they were running all the time seems so unrealistic compared to what Toronto cops actually do. So it seemed like this is part of, you know, them putting flyers on all of our cars and telling us that they need us to give them a full increase. Otherwise, they're not going to keep us safe. Now we have a cop show that will definitely give people the opposite idea of what Toronto cops actually do. I've never seen a cop run anywhere. And they certainly don't know Latin. Uh, so in the show, I don't know in the show, I don't want to give anything away. But, you know, they they knew the Latin phrase when in reality, you know, cops only need a grade 12 education and six months of training. So they're certainly not learning Latin. Yeah, there's there's something about these cops, particularly Graf, who's like, you know, the current would carry the body this way because that's how Lake Ontario works, which I have to admit, uh, Emil, that got me. That got me. I was like, oh, this is like a classic law and orderism, like the idea of yes, yeah. the cop was like, oh, the current in this area of the lake goes this way. I was like, all right, great. I'm I'm sold on this particular move. And it like it features prominently in how they may or may not find the dead person. Uh, can we just talk a little bit about the Law & Order's approach to borrowing crimes from the headlines? I mean, like, the first Toronto episode has a lot of resemblance to the sudden death of a Canadian CEO. His name is Gerald Cotton. Um, he's got, he had a crypt- cryptocurrency firm that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. Emil, when you when you think about the relationship between the the, the real headlines and how we watch mm. them and digest them in in forms like Law and Order, uh, what what kind of impact do you think that has on viewers when we're digesting the news but through this Law and Order lens? Well, you know, the whole thing about Law and Order is that these crimes are ripped from the headlines. That's yeah. you know that's part of the the sell of the show. And again, it's been on for twenty plus years, so I think we're very um, desensitized to that idea at this point. You know, we have seen um, depictions of you know Jeffrey Epstein's crimes, Donald Trump's crimes. We yeah. we have lived through so many iterations of real life um, gore and tragedy through the show and through other shows like it. Um, what I think is kind of interesting with this is that we are not as used to that concept as Canadians of, of seeing some mm. of our Canadian uh, crime stories, uh, you know, depicted in this fashion and dramatized in this fashion. I think, you know, for the most part, uh, we're quite sensitive to that in our media and in, in our coverage yeah. of these types of stories. And, you know, uh, certainly, you know, I've seen this debate pop up when it comes to the crimes of Paul Bernardo, for example, and, yeah. you know, whether it should be dramatized and if it's appropriate to watch that kind of thing. And so that's a debate that I think will be really interesting to have as the season goes on is how do we feel as Canadian viewers? Mm-hmm. Are we comfortable um, with the dramatization of some of our, our bigger tragedies? And, you know, when a news story is big, a crime news story is big in this country, it, it's national news and it is national news for a long time. And I think it'll be really, uh, yeah, unique to, to see that. I don't think that we're quite ready as Canadians for something yeah. like, you know, um, Barry and Honey, you know, the, the bigger stories. The Sherman that we've, murders. That, yeah. The Sherman crime, um, something like that being depicted on a show that is a little bit corny and hammy and designed yeah. to, to distill something like that that's so big in 30 minutes or an hour. Um I don't know if we're comfortable with that yet. So that's uh, that's something that I think will be really interesting to watch with Law & Order at Toronto. Cyrus, what, what Emil is laying out there is, I think, an important distinction between Americans and Canadians because I think like Americans have no particular discomfort with this. There's a long history of a crime happening and then it finding 
finding its way into some kind of dramatization, like not that long after that happens. We tend to resist that. We tend to resist that as a culture. We tend to resist that um, as a country. We are a little bit uncomfortable with seeing our crimes sort of represented in this kind of glitzy way. Law and order, this is the blueprint. This is the thing law and order does in order to make the crimes sort of seem as like realistic as possible. Cyrus, what do you make of law and order's approach to this idea of like these are ripped straight from the headlines? Well, the danger and the risk of the rip from the headline approach is that it can give people the impression that what they're watching on a fictional TV show is the actual outcome or details of the case. And we saw this, of course, when Law & Order famously covered the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's a Black political prisoner who was arrested in 1981 for allegedly killing a police officer in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Someone else has a videotape confession saying that they actually did it. But anyways... Mumia remains in prison. And when Law and Order did the show, they told the story, but made it that Mumia had killed the cop. Right. And so that then becomes part of the, the consciousness. Oh, in the case of Mumia, I saw it on Law and Order. He killed the cop, even though that's not what happened in real life. So mm. there's a risk there that the fantasy or the fiction will be taken as reality. Yeah, I think like that exact risk is the reason why we avoid that. Like as a culture, I think like that is one of the reasons why we in this country tend to resist that. And I actually think like that's a really significant difference about how we approach our, our entertainment versus how Americans approach their entertainment. Uh, Michelle, we should say Law and Order has been successfully transplanting itself in cities and different locales a lot. You know, Los Angeles, New York, LA, Chicago. Uh, it had a stint in the UK. How do you think the format and 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 watching these stories? that are kind of local-ish to Toronto. How do you think that's going to make Toronto stories appeal to audiences across North America? Yeah. So the interesting thing about TV formats and, of course, Law & Order is one of the most successful ones of those, given how many... We see this with all the spinoffs and, you know, the fact that it moves around so much, um, is that it seems like it's a very generic thing and it'll flatten you know, local distinctions, but Hmm. sometimes it can actually work to highlight those differences, the kind of like specificity of the locality. Um, You know, it's this kind of pre-existing container that carries a generic formula, um, but it can also, through the contrast that viewers are making between the different iterations, Mm -hmm. allow for things to come to the foreground. Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like an idealistic way, I think. Yeah, that's really optimistic, but I like it. Possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this format container though, it does make it more likely that the show would be picked up by other networks and maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, syndicated on other channels. It brings Toronto into this like pantheon of, you know, gritty (laughs) North American urban locales. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so, so I can see the value of this kind of generic uh, container or, or packaging to bring Toronto to, I don't know, other other places. I think they get the impression that Toronto is blue all the time. I mean, it's the, the, <laughs> the blue tint on this first episode is in every scene to the point where I was like, do I live here? Do we not have sun sometimes? I don't actually understand what is happening. Emil, uh, last word to you on this. The show is being promoted as a Canadian, all-Canadian production, a Canadian cast, stories written by Canadian writers. There's a lot about that. Let's listen to a scene from the show. Inspector Holmes, are you still searching the west side? Yeah, something about the currents. Well, it's the Coriolis effect, obviously. That flash storm at 4 a.m. Now, it came in from the south. It's possible that the gyre could have shifted clockwise for an hour or so, then, then switched back. Yeah, 
Let's go east, search the bluffs, Cherry Beach, Woodbine. I take it you want me to call it in. I do. Ma'am. Emil, uh, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but this is idea of Canadian-made television that suffers from this perception of being like kind of corny, I think, sometimes. Does Law & Order Toronto live up to that reputation, do you think? Well, I mean, I just, his accent in that clip alone is like, search the bluffs. Uh, <laughs> I do, ma'am. Um, love it. Love that accent. <laughs> immediately recognizable anywhere. Yes. Um, I think uh, there's two things going on. One, a, a series like this can be a huge boon to Canadian television. You know, if you think of um, the kind of star system that Law & Order has been for actors alone, yeah. you know, everyone from Philip Seymour Hoffman to Claire Danes uh, has appeared on Law & Order at some point. A lot of actors got their break on a show like this. So it can be great for actors, for writers, um, for showrunners to have something like this be part of our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that, you know, that w- is wonderful. And it's going to give us an opportunity to grow within that industry as well, because I think we have some room there to grow. We do. But I also, I, I ask myself as I'm watching a show like this and, and reacting to it and feeling like it's cornier than the other Law & Orders that I watch and going, is this a bias that I have about Canadian television that is making me yes. think that it's corny and cornier? This is a corny show. So it's like, I think it's probably just par for the course. Um, so I think what we have to do is, as viewers in, in Canada is like give it a chance and put that, that bias that we have about our television aside. Because I don't know that it's cornier. It's just that this is a well-oiled machine in the U.S. and yeah. it's not in Canada. We don't really have anything like this. So I'm hopeful. Um, and I'm also going to try and, and again, like, just like quiet my voice. That's saying yeah. like, this is not good. Emil, uh, put on the American version. Yeah. I, Let's give it a chance. Let's give it a chance as a country. I'm, I'm, I'm all on board for that. Like I don't, I'm not ready to give up on the show. I think I'm going to stick it out for like, for the season. I will continue to watch the rest of the season. Cause I am curious about how all of these 10 episodes sort of treat um, the idea of Toronto and crime in Toronto and Toronto as a locale for these crimes and these backdrops. Um, but I, I agree with you that the same alarm bells are going off for me. I'm curious about where, what we're going to get to. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Um, my name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. The show is called Commotion. Today on the podcast, we are looking at the big stories in arts and pop culture this week. Emil Niazi is here. Cyrus Marcus Ware is here. Michelle Cho is here. Look, I want to turn the page. It's time to get into Netflix's new live action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Much like Law & Order Toronto, there is a lot of Canada in the show, which is great. It was filmed in Vancouver. Three of its lead actors are Canadian. Let's, let's hear a bit of the trailer. Aang, you must master the Avatar state. It can be the ultimate weapon. Or it can save your life. 
everyone is counting on me. Am I supposed to save the world if I don't know what I'm doing? But imagine what'll happen if you don't even try. All right, here's a background that you need to know on Avatar The Last Airbender. It was a kid's cartoon that came out about 15 years ago. A lot of people think it's one of the best fantasy series of all time. It's set in a world that has mainly northern indigenous and Asian characters. Different cultures have the ability to manipulate one of the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And then there's Aang. The story follows a boy named Aang. He he has special powers as the Avatar. He has to stop the Fire Nation's colonial tear of the world and restore peace. That's the general premise here. Cyrus, there hasn't been an Avatar adaptation that wasn't slammed. Like, that just has not happened yet at this point. Do you think this new version will live up to what fans have been dying for for so long? I think so. And in part, it's because they haven't gone with a whitewashed cast. I'll just, you know, say the M. Night Shyamalan... You know, that one was widely panned, I think, for good reason, because a lot of, you know, a lot of people connected with the fact that there were BIPOC characters, that it was, you know, set in in sort of a communities like ways that were familiar. Uh, and we were getting to see ourselves uh, reflected in this way. So when it comes to a live action, we still want to see ourselves reflected. So this uh, casting is very different. And I think that that alone is going to help to drive uh, interest in the story. And I, I think this is the one. I, I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but I think this is the one. I love that optimism because I think like the the way that fans of Avatar The Last Airbender have been waiting for just some kind of breath of fresh air for so long, I feel bad for them. I, they're, they're the most, you know, um, they're the saddest fandom I can think of because they're like, the material is so good. Why can't, why can't we possibly um, get something that decent happen here? Michelle, the original cartoon was created by two white American men. They said they were largely inspired by Japanese anime and kung fu cinema. Uh, they famously left this project over, quote, creative differences. What kind of conversations has this live action series inspired, do you think, about how Asian and Inuit cultures are represented in this fantasy world? Uh, Avatar will forever exist as a turning point, I think, in this discussion around race and casting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of, you know, came up around the failed earlier adaptation that Sarah's just mentioned. Um, I mean, I think that the Netflix series is really um, focused on trying to remedy that, you know, (laughs) that failure um, by really consciously casting Asian and indigenous actors exclusively. Um, And it's been really interesting to kind of see how that that plays out. And it's an extremely Asian American, Asian Canadian show as a result, which I find super fascinating, given that this is originally a kind of Asiatic fantasy world um, that was dreamed up by two white creators. But now it's being um, like realized in in live action form by now an Asian American or Asian diasporic mm-hmm. um, sensibility. Um, but anyways, to go back to this kind of discussion in fan spaces of the concept of race bending, yeah. um, I think it it. It set off, I think, an ongoing conversation and kind of a fan movement to try to talk back to creators and say, you know, it really what happens when you change a character's perceived racial identity in a media franchise Hmm. really matters. And it kind of reflects it can end up reinforcing or challenging um, the existing kind of like power dynamics, which are 
you know, held up by racial hierarchies in the real world. So there's some real stakes to this, like how you choose to represent even animated fictional characters. And so, yeah, I think Avatar was the perfect series to kind of pose these questions because it's so clear in the original animation that this is a BIPOC world. This is actually a world that doesn't include white people. So yeah, I think, I think for that reason, um, this Netflix adaptation is already uh, a success, even if there are some hardcore fans who are like, but you know, I, I still wanted this or that or the other. I, I like that success can be measured through a bunch of different metrics, right? Like it does not necessarily have to be, hey, this series was perfect. It's just that it did something that the the first few adaptations did not do. Uh, Amelia, last word to you on this. Maybe we got like 30 seconds here. But can you talk a little bit about long-suffering fandoms? Because we always kind of are stuck between who holds the real power. Is it fans or is it studios um, who are, you know, sometimes not really listening to the power of fans. What does Avatar tell us about the power of long-suffering fandoms? Well, I don't think fandoms should dictate content and and the, sure. the you know the the core of what is being made. I think it's important that we don't let people on the internet decide how a story <laughs> should be told. That's fair. Um, but I do think it's so important that you know fandoms have really allowed us to see the power in um, in speaking up when something doesn't live up to. Um, the ideals that we have for it, the power in saying, you know, you've cast this wrong or, you know, this story is important to us. It's important to us culturally. It's important to us, you know, X, Y, Z, and, and ensuring that creators uphold some of the values that made those shows so popular and Mm -hmm. made that content so popular. And so I think it's like um, a, a relationship that requires balance, but I think it's great that fans can finally say about something like this, we're getting what we wanted. Well, that is a perfect place to leave it. Okay, before we go, I just want us to go through a quick round of recommendations. What should I watch? What should I read? What should I listen to? Emil, I'm going to start with you. Uh, okay, no surprise for me. You have to watch the new season of Love is Blind. This is already <laughs> like a very um, dark-coded show. It's like evil at its core, but this season is the most evil that it's ever been. And I just want everyone that's listening to catch up and have this discussion uh, wherever we have our discussions now, because it's just what some of the craziest, wildest uh, reality television that I've ever watched. Love is Blind, the new season. It's on Netflix. I have to say, I've never I've been through six seasons of new cycles around Love is Blind. I've never seen a new cycle like this one. So I'm in. I, I will sit down or watch it. But I'm also already mad about it. Michelle, what do you want to recommend? Uh, so... There's a new K-drama that uh, premiered on Netflix uh, last week called A Killer Paradox, which mm. is, it's a, it's almost like a, a send-up of this uh, police procedural in that it's a cat and mouse game between a unwitting killer and a very savvy but kind of messed up detective. So, Ooh. yeah, it's fun. I'm, I'm on board. That sounds amazing. At Cyrus, what about you? We got 30 seconds left. I would say the Hulu adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred because the second season is about to come out. So if you didn't get a chance to watch the first one, it's a great one to watch. It's also a good reminder of the origins of the police system, which grow out of slave labor camps. So a good one to watch and along with Law & Order Toronto. That is a lot of homework. I'm ready to watch all of this. Emil, Michelle, Cyrus, thank you again for your time. You guys are the best. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Emil Niazi is a culture critic and columnist at The Cut. Cyrus Marcus Ware is a visual artist, activist, and assistant professor at McMaster University. Michelle Cho is a professor at the University of Toronto. By the way, Avatar The Last Airbender is streaming now on Netflix. And Law & Order Toronto Criminal Intent airs Thursdays on City TV. By the way, Tom Power sits down with Karen Robinson. She's a Canadian actor who plays the inspector Vivian Holness on Law & Order Toronto. That is happening next Wednesday. And that is it for the podcast today. Listen, Commotion was produced this week by Stuart Berman, Ty Callender, Amelia Ekbal, Jane Vancouverden, and Jess Lowe. Our intern is Alphonsine Sifu. Our digital producers are Eva Drew and Shuli Grossman-Gray. Our director is Daniel Grogan. Our engineer is Sam Hashmi. Our senior producer, John Perry. And Ricky Keegan is our executive producer. Me, my name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. I'm going to be back next week. I would love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.